Hello, this is Rob Behrens here, welcoming you to another episode of Radio Ombudsman. I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Rosemary Agnew, Scottish Public Services Ombudsman. Rosemary took up the post of Ombudsman around the same time as I did in 2017, and before this she was the Scottish Information Commissioner. She has a wealth of experience in public service, which we'll come on to. She has developed the idea of a complaint standards authority in Scotland, which is something that I want to ask her about. Rosemary, you're very welcome. Thank you for coming. Now, we like to start each episode by hearing a bit about our guests and where they come from. So can you tell us a bit about your early life and the values you you got from that? I am hugely lucky. I come from a very loving family. I have four younger brothers, so I think it fair to say that um, issues about uh, equality were probably in there before I even knew the word. <laughs> but my my family are military family, so um, travelled around as a child, and mostly I'd say what I got from them was a real strong moral compass, not drilled into me, must do this, mustn't do that, but about treating people with respect, particularly when we were traveling to new places and meeting new people for the first time. And and I think that that moral and ethical background, uh, not called that then, it was just try and be a good person, tell the truth, do your homework on time, all these sorts of things probably instilled in me a strong work ethic, but it also instilled in me a very deep level of caring for people Mm -hmm. because I was able to see over the whole of my life, still am, a whole range of people who have different starts in life, different opportunities, Uh, and I think within that, I've developed my own sense of justice and I'm hugely grateful to my parents. They're lovely people and and I even get on with my brothers occasionally. (laughs) When you were travelling around as part of the military family, did you, was that difficult? Did you feel like an outsider? Yes and no to outsider. I went to a lot of schools so you had to learn to make friends quickly mm-hmm. and you couldn't have a, a long lead in time if you like. Because I lived a lot of time in, in military accommodation, that was like a big family of itself because you tended to be with people who were in a similar situation. But mostly I suppose I just saw it as a big sense of adventure. Mm. It doesn't suit all, but for me it was great because uh, I just moved around, um, had a whole wealth of experience, which I don't think I'd have got in any other way. What did you study at university? Well, my main claim to fame, I think, sitting here in Manchester, is the thing that I'm probably most pleased with, is my um, MBA from Manchester Business School. Uh, I also have a teaching qualification, but I think the MBA, because I went back to that after I'd been working a while, was probably the most enlightening part of my education because, again, I learned a lot about a lot of things, but what it, it gave me, because I had the was able to reflect on a working background as well, 
what it gave me was a sense of how to ask questions and challenge in a way perhaps I hadn't done before that. They're very famous alumni from that MBA. I think Vincent Company is a graduate of that scheme. Did you know him? No, I didn't. In fact, <laughs> I, I, I don't think that any of my cohort uh, are names that have uh, come up to prominence, but have all gone on to do good things, some very interesting things. Um, I, I, for myself, because I was, I was public sector at the time, and I've remained public sector for most of the time since then, perhaps have a slightly different view of it, because I was very deliberate in not always going down public sector routes for study or public sector modules because I wanted to learn more about different sorts of thinking. When did you decide what sort of career you wanted? I'm yet to meet an ombudsman who decided they wanted to be an ombudsman. Yeah, I, I think I it, can own up to that. It, it, fair to say that I went to work, I was working in China um, lecturing in business and economics and I needed a job when I got back, so I thought, oh, they're advertising for investigators at the local government ombudsman. That'll do for a while, it'll pay the mortgage until I get something else. And I've pretty much never left ombudsmaning or information commissioning since. And I, I think what it was, was I found a job that I enjoyed, it was challenging, but actually fitted in with my value system. Right. and. You've had a very distinguished and varied career. You were the Scottish Information Commissioner. What, what was the highlight of that before you came to the Scottish Public Service Ombudsman? I think it's hard to say what highlight is in terms of being the Information Commissioner. There are a number of things that I did that I was really proud of in a good way. One of them was it sounds very trivial, but we established a portal for the uploading of freedom of information statistics from public bodies in Scotland. And what that means is now there is a three or four year database of the number of freedom of information requests and the outcome of them for the whole of Scotland that we can look at trends, we can look at developments. And that actually, for me, was a highlight because I didn't necessarily have the enforcement power to do it. It was done through cooperation and co-working with public bodies. The other couple of things that really stick in my mind was very, very early on, a particular decision I made, which was enforcing, uh, telling the Scottish government they had to disclose whether they had taken legal advice about Scotland's position with Europe should they gain independence because it was the time of the independence referendum yeah. and, and why that's particularly interesting is it was a very big issue I think in the independence referendum and nobody I think could have foreseen where we are now. The final one which I think I'll talk about more when we talk uh, maybe about some of the um, ombudsman powers was about a different way of intervening in relation to good and poor practice with Scottish public bodies. You're, you're English, I think, is that correct? Yes. So has there ever been an issue about you holding prestigious and important jobs in Scotland 
about an English person having that responsibility? No, um, I have a Scottish name. Agnew is a Scottish name, and I am married to somebody from uh, Scottish descent. I was once asked by a journalist, was I happy that I had adopted Scotland as my home? <laughs> and I think it's fair to say the answer reflected how I felt, which was, I'm eternally grateful that Scotland has adopted me as a uh, somebody who lives there and does these things within Scotland. But no, it's, it's a different experience to being in England, yeah. but I've never, not to my face anyway, ever had an issue with being English. That's good to hear. Uh, now, can we just talk a bit about uh, the Scottish Ombudsman, which mm. you took up post nearly three years ago. The devolved Ombudsman are different from the UK Ombudsman because they're more modern. They've adopted legislation to make them more relevant to developing situations. And you have more powers than the UK Ombudsman has. What, what's it like being uh, the head of uh, an integrated public service Ombudsman? Is that a good thing? Yes, I think it's a very good thing because you have a different sort of insight, you have a different sort of overview, and sectors do vary. The, there is variance because they're working to different regulations. It, it makes your job very varied also. Uh, I think one of the, the challenges with it though is if you work in a specific sector, so if I reflect on local government ombudsman, you became much more immersed in the technicalities of local government. When you work across sectors, what we find is, particularly a personal reflection, is uh, I have to do a bit more digging round to find out about how the, the sectors operate in Scotland. And I also rely quite a lot on professional advice, mm. particularly for health and social work. So we don't necessarily develop through experience of volume of cases the same experience that you do when you're perhaps looking at uh, one particular area of public service. But the other thing that I think reflects with um, myself and the Welsh and the Northern Ireland Ombudsman is because the population of the country is smaller and the country itself has a, a different sort of structure to it, you often get given things to do that are not necessarily what you would expect an ombudsman to be doing. So as well as complaint handling and the, the complaint standards, we also have duties for with the final stage of appeal for a benefit, Scottish Welfare Fund. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at uh, Northern Ireland and Wales, they also have other things that are different. And, and I think that is as much a challenge as anything, because it's almost like running two completely different functions, but yeah. trying to have an integrated organisation. Okay, so you rely on professional advice, mm. but there must also be a challenge for your case handlers to deal with the the width of functions that they come up with? Are you divided according to the sectors or do, do people have mul multitasking to do? They have multitasking to do and they are an incredible set of people, my investigators. But I think one of the things that drives us 
and that is probably the the uniting thing is very much about values and I think like most ombudsman organisations I've ever come across um, it's a fairly unique workforce I would say because you ask anybody why we're there and very rarely will you deviate far from because we want to make a difference, because we want to see improvement, because we want to make things better. So yes, it's a challenge having the scope and we have some individuals who may have a background in a particular area, but we don't have specialists. Okay, now what you have, which we don't have, is the status of being a complaint standards authority. Could you explain to our listeners briefly what that means? Briefly, what it means is the Ombudsman is responsible for setting a model complaints handling process that all Scottish bodies must follow. And we then, with that, have a duty to monitor performance in relation to complaint handling and combined with some of our other powers, duty to enforce good practice, to report on it. Now, that sounds you know, oh, that's nice, model complaints handling. But what it means in practice is, with some slight variations by sector, uh, because different sectors have slightly different needs, it means that anybody making a complaint to a public body in Scotland and about a public body in Scotland is basically making a complaint under the same set of standards. So the model complaints handling process says that the first stage of a complaint you must try and respond within five working days to resolve it very big focus on resolution if you can't or the person is not satisfied you can then take another 20 working days to look at it in more detail if it's something that you think you need more than 20 days for then talk to the complainer about that but it essentially means that if somebody does not receive a response or doesn't receive a response in time, they get to the ombudsman a lot quicker than they might otherwise do. The other benefit of the complaints model complaints handling process is that there is a very strong focus on learning from complaints. So the standards that go with this, which incidentally I have to lay before the Scottish Parliament the mm -hmm. standards, they also have a very strong bent on learning from complaints. And I think that's an area where we can perhaps develop more in how we hold public bodies to account to demonstrate that learning. Because like our complaints, the model complaints handling, we have to show that there is an impact and that there is value to individuals and to public services as a whole. I, I think for me, the the most valuable thing about it though is it gives you an opportunity to work with public bodies not always in opposition to them mm. which with the best will in the world however much you try a resolution or a, a, a sort of discursive way of looking at complaints once a complaint has reached the ombudsman it is in many ways adversarial whether you want it to be or not. But when you're talking about complaint handling as a whole, you have an opportunity actually to help public bodies and encourage them 
to get better at complaint handling, which you hope means they get better at learning from complaints, which means people get the right service the first time. I don't think we'll ever eliminate complaints, but certainly it, it hopefully will make it a, a more productive experience. Now, I'm a full supporter of what you're doing. I'm a burglar of your practice. When I was the higher education ombudsman, I stole it hook, line and sinker to use in English universities. The idea that they could resolve complaints within five days was anathema to them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have that. We ended up with 90. But nevertheless, they, they did it. But the difference and the, the radical nature of what you do is effectively you are a regulator now. Whereas ombudsmen have traditionally always said we rely on our moral authority, not on a coercive power. Has that made a difference or is it just um, words? No, I, I don't think it makes it's made a difference yet. I, I also think I should add that I was an ombudsman when the Complaint Standard Authority came in, yeah. and credit has to go to Jim Martin, my predecessor, for driving this. Yeah. What he's left me as a legacy is something really good to develop and work with, which is what we're doing now. Having been Information Commissioner, which really is a regulatory function, you know, your decision is binding or you go to court, I think the concept of regulation probably hasn't crept into our thinking with complaint standards in quite the same way, but it is something that we're currently developing, but maybe not calling it regulation in the same way. Because one of the things that I would say, learning from hindsight, is that we took a very structured approach of rolling it out sector by sector, this model complaints handling. And what that meant was it was a number of years before every public body in Scotland was following this. So the NHS was the last, and that's been the last, I think just coming up to the end of their second year. Now if you compare that to the first, which was local government, local government now, so a really high percentage of complaints get uh, responded to in the first instance, in the five working days. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think from memory it's it's over 80% and that's really significant for complainers. Yeah. Now what we've been looking at in the last few months and we went live with in April is what we've called our support and intervention policy and this is a, a concept that I brought with me from being information commissioner um, and basically was looking at all the powers that you have as an ombudsman because the real value comes in the combination of them, not just the individual bits. So when you look at the powers to set complaint handling processes, to take action if complaint handling falls short, you then look at other things like your information gathering powers. We've created a framework which sets out what our powers are and within that, what we are going to do to either support or if necessary intervene because when we for example a simple example we might see a number of complaints from a public body where the final response that they give to the complainer does not signpost the ombudsman mm -hmm. they have a duty to do that under the complaints handling process 
So we are getting better at our own intelligence. We're logging feedback, recommendations, observations from uh, what we see in complaints. So if we spot something like that, we might just, well, my, my investigators, my complaints reviewers, will let the, the public body know. We give feedback in decisions. If we keep seeing that, we might give it more formal and say, we spotted this a number of times, but is there any help? You know, we might offer to, say, share a template letter, or if it's something different, perhaps go and give them some training if we've got the resource to do that. But we set it out step by step, at which point it becomes a management issue and senior managers might actually contact senior managers or chief executives. The ultimate being we use the powers that the ombudsman has to enforce and report. This, so this yeah. sounds very incremental and civilised, but do you, do you come across intransigence? Well, it went live in April and so far we've not found intransigence. And I think some of this is drawing on experience of information commissioner that I'll give you a very simple example. Similar powers to compel production of information for an investigation and telling public bodies very formally, if you do not provide this, this and this, by this date, I will report on this. Mm-hmm. I will take further action. It can actually be contempt of, treated as contempt of court in Scotland. So you only need to make that clear that you're going to do it and to do it once and then report on it in your annual report. And actually, public bodies realise, I think, that you're being serious. But we try to get to the point before that where you point out this is the value particularly for the complainer of doing this. So we're in early days. We haven't come across the real intransigence yet, but I've no doubt that there'll be some there at some point. But the word civilised is a good one, and we will endeavour to be as civilised as we can, but firm with it. What, what is your... You report to the Scottish Parliament. Yes. What is your relationship like with that body? I'd say it's pretty good in the sense of it's open, challenging, and when I say friendly, I don't mean we're all friends. It's, mm. it's, it's very professional in many ways. So I, my main dealings are with the Scottish Parliamentary Corporate Body. I get my funding through them. So we have contact with them on a fairly regular basis. Each year I appear before the Local Government and Communities Committee to be held accountable for my annual report. So they'll ask me questions about our performance, about what we're doing. I do appear before other committees as well, either in relation to other policies or in relation to other consultations that we've responded to. I would say in Scotland that generally the Ombudsman is held in high regard and seen as being independent and impartial. And probably the, the, the most telling evidence of this is we're taking on new powers next year. This is about whistleblowing. Yes, we're. I'm taking on the wonderful title of Independent National Whistleblowing Officer for the NHS in Scotland. Wow. And the reason that we are taking on this function is because the government's public consultation 
it was suggested it should be the Ombudsman. It's another good example of how in a smaller jurisdiction you get a number of different things. But going back to Parliament, they have held me to account on things, but also where I have brought something to them in my, my committee appearances, they've also been quite supportive. So one of my beefs about my legislation is complaints must be in writing unless there are special circumstances. Now, the problem with that is the onus is on the complainer mm. to show special circumstances. And it means you can't be as flexible in how you take complaints. Yeah. And I've been trying since I became Ombudsman to have the legislation, it's secondary legislation, to say I can take complaints in any format. And at the last parliamentary appearance, the committee did actually write to the government and say, we think this is a good idea. Please, could you look into this again for us? Sadly, the Scottish government are not taking it forward at this time because they have other business and don't have the resource, apparently, which is very disappointing. We're coming towards the end, but let me ask you a few quick fire questions. So you're funded differently to the way we're funded because mm -hmm. we we get our money from a broad treasury vote. But you're funded through Parliament. Have you got enough money? Is that a satisfactory way to do things? No, I haven't got enough money. And it's satisfactory in the sense of, I think it is good that the funding doesn't come from government. It adds something to your being able to say, I am independent. What I think is yeah. unsatisfactory about it is, and probably the same for you, is the annuality of it. Mm. It's very difficult to do proper business and resource planning when you can't guarantee you will have the money to do it next year. It also means that I feel I do go through some fairly unnecessary hoops just to get one additional member of staff mm. or an extra little bit of money for this. Where it does work well and where I think the corporate body really try hard for myself and other parliamentary crown appointments is they hold a contingency fund to which we can apply for unexpected things. So if we were judicially reviewed, we could get legal costs through that. And that works well to point. We had some unexpected IT costs this year, which we were able to go to the contingency fund. But generally, I, I think ombudsmen across the UK are underfunded. If we had sufficient funding, we wouldn't have backlogs of cases. We would be doing things quicker, but we have to make do with where we are at the moment. Two final questions, Rosemary. First of all, going forward, uh, what's your biggest challenge as the Ombudsman? Are you an Ombuds or are you an Ombudsman? I'm happy to be an Ombudsman because that's what the legislation says and I know the origins of the word. But equally, I don't mind um, if other people call me something similar, whatever they're comfortable with. It's the spirit of what we do that's really important. I think my biggest challenge and the biggest challenge for my office is a combination of resourcing and the whistleblowing work that's coming next year. That's fundamentally different in some ways. 
Well, do you have regulatory powers? My powers will be very similar as they are to ombudsmen. Right. But is, that doesn't worry me. This is big. Yeah. And it's very different from what happens in England. It's, it's almost two similar but completely distinct functions. They're two different titles that go with them, ombudsman and independent national whistleblowing officer. Do you get a pay officer. rise as a result of that? I don't know. <laughs> I say I would like one. The, I'd do the job anyway. But I suppose for me, the issue of the pay is not so much for my tenure, but for future ombudsmen, because I have a real concern across, in, in common with fellow ombudsmen in the UK, that if you don't pay your ombudsman enough to attract good ombudsmen, you can't forever rely on what I think has happened so far. Just in Scotland, we've just got good people who've been attracted to the work. Yeah. So I hope they up the pay, but if it's not for me, I don't mind. What does the legislation say about second terms for ombuds? In Scotland, there are no second terms. So you, after five years, you have to move on, do you? I have eight seven? years. Eight years? Oh, yeah. Wow. So it, it, under um, public sector law, it can be four to eight years. So as information commissioner, I actually had a six-year tenure. This one is eight years. But at the point that I became ombudsman, it was already known that we would be taking on the whistleblowing. So it's probably right for that because just the, the nearly three years getting to the point of knowing what the legislation is going to say has been over in a blink of an eye. Okay, last question. We're in Manchester. This is a young, thriving organisation full of young graduates who've just come into the ombudsman world perhaps 120 young graduates in the last 18 months. You're an experienced, highly respected member of the profession, if I can call it that. What, what would be your advice to my colleagues just coming into the ombuds field? Don't ever lose sight of the passion of what drives you to do the right thing for the right reasons, but leave ombudsmaning for a while and go and do something else and come back to it so that you can see just how wonderful a values-based organisation is, but also so you have a different perspective on world experiences. That's lovely. Rosemary, it's been a great privilege for us to listen to you. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure to be here, Rob. Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.